1: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there.
0: Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? L'histoire, la sécurité nationale.
2: crime organisé, dinero sucio. Global rupture, tabro de puns, la democracia. Y ahora, ATP.
0: Y ahora, con ustedes, su adivision, regoler. Regoler. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know on our side will win.
2: Greg Oliar, this is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. The author of Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. Jim Campbell is here. If you watched the Netflix docuseries on Madoff called Monster of Wall Street, Jim's book was one of the ones optioned and really provided the architecture for telling that story in the way that it did. And you can see him also. He's one of the people that, that are uh, interviewed in the docuseries. The book is really amazing. It's, there's a lot of firsts going on in it. It's the first complete story of the Ponzi scheme with a lot of you know information that has never been revealed before. He had incredible access to the Madoff family, Bernie, Ruth, Andrew, It's the first and only time Ruth Madoff talked extensively to a media source. So that's, you know, of of note. It's the first extensive examination of why he orchestrated the Ponzi scheme and when he actually started it, which I think is a lot earlier than people realize. It's the first examination of how he did it. Because Madoff had in the Lipstick Building in New York City, which is this sort of roundish, pinkish building that looks like a, a, a lipstick tube right? Uh, He had the 17th floor and the 19th floor. And on the 19th floor, he had his uh, legit business, the market-making business. And on the 17th floor, he had his uh, basically the Ponzi scheme headquarters. And it was like two different worlds. It was like the heaven and hell, really, uh, for this guy. So uh, Jim goes into great detail about that. It's really fascinating. It's also the first in-depth examination and exposure of the systemic failure of the regulators, and Wall Street itself uh, in the Ponzi scheme, including the unwitting co conspirators. I mean, there's a lot of massive failure and incompetence on the part of the government and the regulatory agencies, the SEC and on, uh, which Jim goes and takes to task here. And the first in depth examination of the so called Big Four. If you watch the docuseries, you know he had, Bernie had these four original kind of investors who were super wealthy. They were like whales. And, you know, per Jim's book, they were complicit and kind of extorted him and turned the tables on him a little bit. The biggest investor was a guy named Pickauer, Jeffrey Pickauer. And he made something like $7.2 billion out of the Ponzi scheme, which Madoff himself made, quote, only, unquote, uh, 800 million. So uh, seven times what Madoff stole, this guy wound up taking. And it's the first time Madoff and his victims are profiled sort of side by side. It, it's a misconception that a lot of the victims were like super rich people. And yeah, a lot of them were, but, um, you know, a thousand of the 16,000 victims had assets under half a million dollars. So he was really stealing money from, you know, people that were literally just giving him their life savings and, uh, wound up getting screwed. Eventually, by this this guy named Picard, which he goes into also uh, when it came back to clawing back the funds and how that was managed and or mismanaged in, in Jim's view. So it's a really interesting story. Madoff is a is a fascinating figure. Obviously, um, he's kind of a paradox. Uh, you know, why did somebody this brilliant do this? He was a guy who was you know he was the chairman of NASDAQ. He was very very well respected on Wall Street. The SEC would call him with questions when they didn't understand something, and his Legit business was run, I mean, as, as ethically as a business can be run. So it really was two sides of the uh, you know Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing with this guy. I wrote over the weekend, last weekend, about Gatsby for my Sunday pages on my Prevail Substack, and I talked about Tom Buchanan, who's the, the kind of dickish rich guy from Gatsby. And my, my thesis is that the Tom Buchanan's always get away with it, right? They're always getting away with stuff. Um, because they're, you know, the favored sons of America. And somebody, like, I can't remember who it was, wrote on Twitter, well, not always, you know, Bernie Madoff got caught eventually. And my response is, yeah, Madoff isn't the Tom Buchanan. Madoff is a Gatsby. He really is. He's a, he invented himself. He amassed his fortune through his brains and through criminal activity. He burnished his reputation. He used people to trust wash himself to get what he wanted and ultimately, he paid the price. Gatsby dead in the swimming pool. Madoff died in prison. It was actually Jeffrey Pickhauer who died in the swimming pool. But you get the idea. I think Madoff is a Gatsby, which makes him an American figure, you know, a sort of quintessential American figure. This con man, the greatest con man of all time, maybe up there, certainly on the short list. So again, there's a lot to be learned from this. We have uh, now the Sam Bankman-Fried situation where it's there's some similarities. I also talked to Jim about that. So it's a pretty fascinating interview, um, and Jim, as you will immediately glean, is a you know he's a he's a great uh, guy to talk to. He has a great voice, good storyteller, and he 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 spills some tea here. There's some stuff here that I didn't know that wasn't in the documentary that uh, that he told me. That's that's pretty uh, interesting to hear. So um, great interview. Uh, I got nothing else up at the top. There's not much to say. Good on Biden for going to Ukraine. Really courageous to show that he is not fearful to go there. Whereas, you know, contrast with Putin, who like leaves his bunker for 15 minutes to address his crowd of people that if they don't stand up and clap everything he says, uh, they'll probably be shot or fall out of a window or something. I mean, such a contrast in leadership styles. And uh, I don't know. I think it was on the world stage kind of thing. You know, Biden really hit a home run this week between the, the Kiev trip and then going to Poland and giving that speech. Really a, a banner week for Biden and a, a terrible week for the he's senile, he's old, the crowd. Yeah, yeah, he's old. But who cares? Because he did that. You know, it's hard to go, go different time zone and, you know, the stakes couldn't be higher for these things. And he did it great. You know, he, he was great. And I'm I'm proud that he is our president at this moment. In American history, there's also the the uh, McCarthy gave Tucker Carlson the, <laughs> the footage of the J6. Like I think I read 30,000 hours of footage of stuff that happened. This is obviously a national security risk because Tucker is so in bed with dictators at this point that it's you have to wonder where his allegiances really are. And there's stuff on, in that footage I'm sure that reveals security that we have at the Capitol, which we don't necessarily want our hostile foreign powers to get a hold of. But I find myself thinking, my God, is he really going to try to make a, a, a movie out of this to show that that J6 was hunky-dory, that it was just tourists? It's like taking the most hardcore porn you could possibly find and taking all the sex out of it. Good luck with that tuk-tuk. I feel like it's going to be like a 10-minute film. Nine minutes of it are going to be like another stock footage of that guy charging his junk in the UV light. And uh, and then you know people walking through the Capitol with dumb hats on. So I don't know. It, it, it's it's no laughing matter. And yet these guys are such clowns that it's hard sometimes not to laugh at at their stupidity and, and incompetence and outright egregious uh, treasonnessness, treasonousness, treachery. How about treachery? Yeah, treachery is a good word. So uh, that's enough for upfront. I've talked long enough. This is a great interview, uh, Jim Campbell. Super cool guy. Very uh, grateful to him for coming on the show and talking to me. Check out his book. It's called, again, Madoff Talks, Uncovering the Untold Story Behind the Most Notorious Ponzi Scheme in History. We'll be right back with Jim
0: Campbell.
2: Have you been caught breaking the law? Are you looking at serious prison time? Are you considering fleeing the country to get a jump on the feds? Don't go to a criminal attorney or to Costa Rica. Go to Congress. Hi. Hi. I'm Matt Gates here to tell you about the Vintage 99 Political Consulting Group. Vintage 99 will make sure you get elected. And once you're on Capitol Hill, trust me, the DOJ won't go near you. Whether you failed to register as a foreign agent, lied on your SF-86, violated campaign finance laws, ran afoul of the Hatch Act, illegally penetrated a skiff, done insider trading of stocks, or conspired with other Republicans to topple the government and install a fascist strongman as president for life, Vintage 99 has you covered. Seriously guys, did you know that the longest serving Republican Speaker of the House was a serial pedophile? It's true! And don't even get me started on the skeletons in Jim Jordan's shower. Give Vintage 99 a call today. They accept Euro, Crypto, and Venmo. Remember, I'm not just a spokesman for Vintage 99. I'm also a client. And now, back to the show. Jim Campbell, welcome to Prevail Podcast.
1: Greg, it's my honor to be here and as I uh, was telling you before I went on the air, your show looks very interesting.
2: Um thank you. We try to we try, the the reason that the show is interesting is because I have interesting people on because I <laughs> uh I don't have anything interesting to say. I'm just trying to get interesting people on to um hip us to stuff that they know and you've written a book about uh one of the more fascinating people of the uh the late 20th century in Bernie Madoff and you've had uh Incredible access to him and his family and uh, and all that stuff, and it's it, it it's just a great uh, story and a great uh, piece of journalism. So you know, congratulations on that. The book is called Madoff Talks. I keep wanting to call it Madoff Speaks, but it's Madoff Talks: Uncovering the Untold Story Behind the Most Notorious Ponzi Scheme in History. I have a lot of questions for you. But before we get into Bernie, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into how did you get interested in him? How did you wind up where you are now?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And by the way, before we start, that Madoff speaks uh, hits close to home. When the book uh, came out, uh, I was on CBS Sunday morning, right? And then two days later, it was uh, coming out, right? Amazon then ran out two days beyond that. And they wouldn't take any orders because they don't if there's not a backlog in the, you know, on the pipeline or anything. Oh, that's so, amazing. <laughs> right. Immediately after, there is a Cliff Notes version of my book, which is quoting me in my book. It's six pages. Okay. Be, a couple of days beyond that a book shows up underneath mine. and remember it's saying not available. Mine made off speaks, oh, which geez. sounds suspiciously <laughs> like Madoff talks. I had my marketing person order the Kindle. It was 120 pages blank. <laughs> and, and trust me, I had people asking me, which one is yours talks or speaks, you know? So okay. it's Madoff talks. From Madoff. Talks made off talks, talks, talks. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Let me just, uh, you know, address that uh, that question. I have a show, Forensic Talk, which is crime-based, and I have a show, Business Talk, which is business talk, and often they overlap, as with Bernie. <laughs> right. And uh, um, So how it happened is I was doing a, an interview with a woman named Lori Sandell, and she'd written a book that Andrew Madoff had, had cooperated with a bit, focused only on their family upbringing when they were kids, and Andrew had forced Ruth to cooperate. She didn't want to and didn't like the book. And the coincidence or the luck is Lori Sand, my show was live then. Lori Sandel says, um, you know, on, on the eve of the interview, do you want for your prep to talk to Andy? I said, well, Andy Madoff? I can, you know, and this is at a time when he's like the most vilified guy with his dad sure. and everything. And so um, I call, and it's off the record, right? Because he's, he's being sued left and right, so he can't talk. Get him on the phone, and I start attacking him right away. Hey, listen, your dad gave you $3 bucks to buy a co-op on the um, uh, Upper East Side of New York months before this. Don't you think you ought to be giving that money back? And he totally disarmed me. He said yes. And then um, <laughs> so we talked a bit. And he um, he said, you know, Jim, I'm going to listen to the show tomorrow, and if I'm hearing the same kinds of things out of you, I'll talk to you. So he listened, and then access number two, total coincidence, Ruth Madoff, his mother, is moving to Greenwich from Florida, and I live in Greenwich. So I said, um, you know, Andrew, why don't I take her out to lunch? You know, she's not going to be having a lot of people knocking her door down for lunch. And um, December, cold morning, uh, we meet outside the restaurant. We go in. Um, She's a highly attractive woman, very nice. Doesn't take her sunglasses off, even though there's no one in the restaurant. Obviously did not want to be recognized. Proceeds to eat a chef salad like she hadn't eaten in weeks. And then I found her again, disarmingly straight. And um, we had a great conversation until we were walking out. And I asked if I could get a picture. She stopped and said, you're wired, aren't you? And thought I'd set her up. But... Once I, I got that comfort index back, and I told Andy, tell her I didn't wire tap her, she introduced me to Bernie in prison. And I told Bernie, this is your chance to talk to history, but I'm going to vet every single word you say. And he said, Jim, I accept that. Andy and Ruth have vouched for you. And the rest is 400 pages later of history.
2: That's, yeah, that's remarkable. It's, it's you know, having seen now the, do- the documentary on Netflix, which you, you are in, uh, I don't know how much you had to do with it, but you're certainly interviewed in it. And I'm like, this is going to be fun. I got to talk to him. Uh, The Ruth story ends up sadly, like she probably did need you to take her out to lunch. It sounded like from the end of the thing, it didn't wind up well for her. Let me just say on the the
1: Netflix, um, which is uh, made off the monster of Wall Street, my book was optioned for that. So I was very lucky. So I actually got to play a pretty big role behind the scenes. I had to educate them all because they didn't, they were, Joe Berlinger, number one true crime documentary director, had been doing serial killing and Jeffrey Epstein and Maxwell, Ted Bundy. And this was a new thing for him. And they treated me really, really well. In fact, my contract, you know, said um, producer. And when I watched it in advance one week before it came out, they had given me co-executive producer, so they promoted me without even telling me, and um, and I and I'm in it as well. They taped me about ten hours over three different times, um, which was an interesting experience for me because my background is radio, or you don't do retakes. So when I had to retake everything, I started to think I must suck, but that's just the way uh, <laughs> the way they the way they do it. So I was very lucky not only that they optioned the book, but to be in it. But the thing that meant the most to me is the story is highly complex, particularly I did the first what I call architecture, which is just going beyond Bernie, but looking at the untold story, how the system failed, the regulatory piece, Wall Street, and all of that to put together was complex. And Joe Berlinger, doggone it, he did it. He didn't tabletize it or Hollywoodize it. He actually told this huge complex story over four uh, episodes and to show you how good, what a great job he did i flew back from mexico last saturday and in, the, in my seat was two couple that had just seen it they didn't remember my face they said we recognize your voice <laughs> uh, yes i believe that i believe yeah <laughs> you wouldn't believe this for three hours, Greg, they grilled me on on the movie and all the pieces of it. They had remembered every single one of these huge convoluted uh, details. So Joe Berlinger gets a lot of a lot of credit for that.
2: I know it's a, the 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 movie is fantastic. My wife watched it while I was away, and she was like, "We need to watch this. You should watch it with me." And she's not usually into that stuff at all. So it was sort yeah. of interesting to me that it that it caught her attention and. You know, the the book, your book is a very good, uh, you can tell that they dug into the book and that they used it a yeah. lot because it, Thanks. Yeah, you, you do a nice job, you know, breaking it all down because it is a complicated story. I think people know about the Ponzi scheme and that, right. that kind of horror. But uh, the, the other details are, you know, I think less known and, and, and stuff that you broke and were the first person to talk about, um, you know, so I, I recommend the documentary and I recommend the book. I think they're, you know, they're really good. Um, so here's, uh, let's start here. Okay. Heading into this project, you have an impression of Bernie Madoff. What was your impression of Bernie before you, you know, sat down and had lunch with Ruth and all that? And how has it changed in the, in the time now that you've written the book and, and been through it?
1: No one's asked that question I thought of before and after. Um, well, obviously, you know, I have the the villain kind of thing. And um, this this was I mean, just think about it. It was so not only so horrendous, but it started with his own friends and family and then his own community and then the Jewish community. And um, I'm not Jewish, but to rip someone in the Jewish community off when you're Jewish financially is like sacrilegious. Yeah. So it was just beyond the pale. Now I get to I get to meet him um, uh, or deal with him. He's low key, charismatic, nice, brilliant, total recall, and so it was a lot of uh, sort of uh, fun and challenge to go back and forth. He let me t- attack him any way that I wanted. Um, he was kind of Nixonian in that he was really, really, really focused on his reputation as on the legitimate business and as a, you know, as a savant behind the trading and his his supposed strategy, which he was just devoted on convincing me was a real strategy. And then he would say, well, I know, Jim, I wasn't doing any trading. So delusion. delusional. <laughs> um, so that all. And then, of course, so part two of that is I get all this 400 pages st- of stuff. And what do I do with it? And I said, I got to try and do a book. I can't go vet whether anything he told me was honest until I have a contract, right? Because yeah. otherwise, it's a hobby that I don't have time to do. And so he was candid in the criminal nature of the Ponzi scheme. But other stuff, the way he was attacked by the SIPC bankruptcy trustee and all the things that he thought were unfair um, and abusive, I said, well, you know, maybe they're true. I've got to investigate. i got to find out. Um, but I didn't know at the time. But So I didn't... Um, I was kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt again, because he's he's persuasive. I mean, as you can see, he's very effective effective as a con man. I used to tell him, in fact, Bernie, the reason you're such a great con man is you're the anti-con man. He was low key. He never needed your money. He said, don't give it to me if you, you know, I'll give it back if you're asking questions. And he didn't like even dealing with any of these folks. He let the feeder funds get out front and deliver it. Right. Um, so so in other words he's very effective you know he ran the legitimate business like a family his family was very close-knit um so all of those were uh, you know he was he was a he's a he was a very nice guy unfortunately by the time I finished vetting it was just a, a giant collapse of lies
2: did you did you did you go see him in prison or did you just communicate by letters and stuff yeah the, the
1: the The goal was to go down there uh, several times, and each time the warden vetoed me as a security risk. If you can get that, like, what am I a financial terrorist or something? <laughs> so, um, and the, and the one that really hurt was so he wouldn't let me go down. Dealing on the phone wasn't going to work because he's allowed ten minutes at a time. Yeah, right? that's not yeah. And I cannot tape it legally. So it was like that was ridiculous, although in an infamous Bernie moment, he called the house once and you have to call collect from prison. Right. I wasn't there. So my wife turned the call down and he was so angry with me. I mean, turning Bernie made off, you know, and he's like, this is the most <laughs> insult that he's ever been, you know. So but the thing is, um, we hoped right at the end. I said, OK, we're going to you know, it's going to come out with McGraw Hill, invite me down. Um. So we've been face to face and all that. He says at this point, I won't answer any more questions. I said, that's fine. We'll just be friends. And so he says, you have to apply as friends now, because they're not going to let any, anybody in now any more journalists. So and we are friends in the sense that I got to know his family, right? Yeah. And Marty. So he says, that's an honest answer. Put it in there. So it goes up to the warden, and I'm vetted behind the scenes, apparently. And it says, uh, this guy's writing a book on Bernie. So I got ousted <laughs> again. I will tell you this, though. They then try. Tried- so we're communicating on these handwritten letters, but also by the prison uh, email system, particularly after he had some mini strokes. All of a sudden, the warden cut us off. And Bernie didn't know if it was me that cut him off or that I didn't know if it was Bernie that cut me off. Mm. It just happened. Ruth actually intervened uh, to say that Bernie was really upset what happened. So uh, I found that the uh, again, the warden just did this arbitrarily, but I had the right to appeal. I appealed, turned it down. I had a right to appeal again, appeal again, turned it down. So I said, OK. Uh, I'm from, uh, I do assistant news director for the Greenwich radio station, and we interview all the time Connecticut senators. And Senator Blumenthal is one of the leading Democrats on the uh, Judiciary Committee, which oversees the Justice Department, which oversees the Bureau of Prisons. And the next day they turned me back on.
2: Good. Yeah. That, that seems like just the warden just flexing some petty little power ridiculous. bullshit. Yeah, no, I mean, it's for the public record here. It's it's for the public good. So, OK, so let's talk about the, the, the case itself that you that you helped unwind. I mean, one of the the prime motivating factor for Bernie seems to be that he wanted to protect his family and his closest friends. And that was consistent even when he started out doing the investments like with the failed IPO trades back in the late 60s, yeah. uh, as, you, as you write in the book. So uh, t- tell a little about that, because I think that's a good character piece.
1: The family thing was real, both in the sense of his nuclear family. Uh, The boys worshipped him, you know, he was like the Wizard of Oz, which is what Bernie wanted to be the go to guy, the king of Wall Street, always deliver, which was a problem psychologically, um, because he got himself into the Ponzi scheme, which he should not have been doing. He didn't have the psychology for trading. Um, And then, and, and then, of course, he ran, he did run the particularly legitimate business. As a family, he paid for um, honeymoons. He paid for sudden medical expenses. Downstairs, he basically overpaid them with huge amounts and fake IRAs and and all that stuff. Um, in terms of, and I don't know if you were directly getting to this, why he pled guilty. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, that was definitely related to two factors. Number one, exactly the family. Ike Sorkin, his uh, lawyer, and Bernie thought it would kill Ruth. go through a long trial but the second thing was which is interesting um and if you know the big four and i'm sure you're going to ask about them pick that's the next question (laughs) yeah bernie grew to hate them because they were particularly pick they were extorting him right and bernie knew that pick had many more assets than what the trustee thought the trustee was going to go after 2.5 billion clawback from pick and bernie knew he had seven to nine billion a lot of it at Goldman Sachs. So he felt that if he pled and took that off the table, that he could recoup some of the money by basically blackmailing back Picower. You know, I'm going to expose your wife. I'm going to expose uh, his right hand assistant who did a lot of the uh, calling in of the fake trades or requests for them. And so that was part of a strategy. um The other thing is, as you said, he did not want to turn people in. As long as you didn't turn on him, he was protecting you. He, and I say, Bernie, you couldn't have done this whole thing yourself. And he was very protective. Now, when Frankie DiPascale, the right-hand man, turned on him, Bernie turned on him like, like that. And he's a, he's a rat. He's going to get beat in prison. He's a bad guy and all this stuff. And, um, you know, it's Bernie passing the blame, as as he always did. But you're right. He was actually trying to protect all of these minions. He said, Jim, I'm the principal. I own this company as a proprietorship. It wasn't their deal. They were doing what they were told.
2: Yeah, it's interesting uh, the way that works out. So um, you mentioned Pick Hour. Um, this, to me, was something that I didn't know because all I knew About the story really is that, you know, Bernie Madoff, he does a Ponzi scheme, which for people listening that don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, it's basically a fake investment fund that uh, the money that comes in from new clients goes to pay off the earnings of the existing clients and so on. And you have to keep basically finding new clients to put money in and then pay it out. Uh, and eventually it collapses because uh, yeah. a, 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 of the weight of the whole thing. But there was one of these, the big four, as you say, the the one that was the most, I guess, notorious is this guy, Jeffrey Pickauer, who pretty much we think uh, figured out kind of early on, it seems like what Bernie was doing. And every time the Ponzi scheme was in danger of collapse because of lack of funds, he would be like, OK, here's here's more money. Let's keep it going. Uh, without actually saying so. Um and in, in so doing was able to extort him, uh extort Bernie, because uh once the the scheme got back on its feet, then Pick Hour would take out a lot more money than he yep. put in. Yep. So um it's just an interesting thing. Tell us a little more about that dynamic and 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 okay. how it affected Bernie in, in his head and all that kind of stuff.
1: And um and as you said, uh, Panji scheme. More people have to be coming in the front door than are leaving with their money out the back door, and that's why yeah. it normally collapses. Uh, and to last forty years that Bernie did is unbelievable. But the thing is that um, what was real, what was happening, which was making even worse. Why I called it a reverse Robin Hood is here's Picower with all this money. And what Bernie was doing was Bernie um, pick hours extorting them for 30, 40, 50 percent and above returns. And he was paying his average net worth guys because he did not have everybody in this fund was rich, which was also assumed. But some of these guys had been putting money away for 40 years. He took basically their money, gave them 11, 12, 15 percent, depending on the era, and then gave it to 40% returns to these guys. So essentially taking the money of less net worth people and giving it to the highest net worth mm-hmm. uh, people, making it even more insidious, uh, if you will. And Pickower eventually took out $7 billion out of this fund. And as I say, Bernie stole 800 million that he put in the back door of the legitimate business on the 19th floor of the lipstick building, 17th floor being the Ponzi scheme nine times more money Pickhauer took out now bernie took some other stuff out but nine times more now you will not find a ponty scheme anywhere where the guy who ran it did not take all the money
2: <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's a fascinating thing to me because it's like it seemed like they never really had a proper uh they didn't have closure about it either they didn't have a standoff there was never it was like they were they were um, you know romantic uh, romantic interests in high school, and they didn't want to you know they both kind of knew it, but they never actually declared their 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 love affair, except the the opposite because I think they hated each other. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, Pickhauer probably as as I think you say in the in the documentary would have been indicted, but he um, was found dead in his swimming pool, probably um, of a heart attack. Um, you know, because this this thing
1: had to be stressful. I you know what said. my favorite part of that uh, story is that. Um, <laughs> Uh, His wife, when she called for the EMS, she said "Um, he's on the bottom of the pool and I don't know how long he's been there because I fell asleep reading my book. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how long he's been down there could have been a week or, you know, (laughs) let me tell you something that's not in the book now a little bit of a scoop here, just to give you a sense of the passive aggressive hatred that Bernie had. Barbara Pickhauer and Jeff Pickauer live basically next door in Palm Beach, right? They're winter homes. Madoff had an affair with Barbara (laughs) Pickhauer.
2: You can't make this stuff up. Okay. Now, that I didn't know. It's funny because I was talking to my wife about this, and she was like, well, you know, at least Madoff didn't, like, you know, sleep around and have affairs. Well, I guess he did, you know.
1: Not Not only did he, not in a huge amount, but not only did he, but I had lunch with Ruth once, and you talk about uncomfortable. She said, and she didn't obviously know this. She worshipped him. She said, "Did you know that he had these affairs?" And I had to say, "Yes," and could say nothing else. And and we dropped it.
2: Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that, that is uncomfortable, but it makes sense. I mean, if you're lying about everything else in your life, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, why not lie about that? Um. That <laughs> that's the perfect.
1: <laughs> By the way, that's a really good point you just raised because. What I was trying to do is Bernie's telling me all this stuff, and I, and Jim, I, here's the criminal thing, every, and I'm being honest now about that, and I'm being honest. So there was this Hadassah treasurer, which you may have heard of, and she wrote a book about an affair with Bernie, right? And Bernie denied it and said she was and told me she was a stalker and everything. And I said, Bernie, I'm not going to judge you. I don't care about it, but let me tell you this. I need to have credibility that you're telling me the truth on everything. And this is something that's a little embarrassing, but you need to tell me the truth because if you're lying about it, you you have no credibility. Jim, she was a stalker and never bum bum, And let me tell you something. Not only if you read the book, you know it has to be true because she had all of his psychological um quirks, you know yeah. that he had. Um, and the second thing is Eleanor Squalria, who is one of my heroes in the book who was Bernie's secretary on the legitimate business, totally honest. She told me Bernie, and she was very close to Ruth, right? Very close to Bernie. She told me Bernie had her go over to the hotel where he was meeting the Hadassah treasurer to scout the room out to make sure it was all right. And, you know, Eleanor would be on him saying like, "This, you can't do this. You, you can't do this to Ruth, blah, 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 blah. But it's obviously true. He sends his secretary to scout yeah. the
2: room out. She's great in the documentary, by the way.
1: Great, great human, great human being, too.
2: She also has a wonderful, wonderful New York, you know, outer borough accent. That's just yes, it's yes. right from Staten, Staten Island. High school <laughs> graduate, yeah, delightful. Uh, I yeah, she was great. I'm thinking about the psych, getting into. I have other questions too, but we're on the topic of the psychology. The thing that strikes me the most, watching this and thinking about it, like I'm the mm. kind of guy where I don't like. I don't like to jaywalk even because I'm afraid I'm going to get cu- you know like I, it stresses me out to do stuff like that to to do a crime of this magnitude for this length of time you know I, I, thinking about it and the decades over which it took place and they didn't even bother to to make any trades. They said they were making yep. trades and making these investments and they would cook up fake investments. They would go back retroactively and yep. and, and invent shit to show people if people got curious. That's how they, yep. they kind of kept afloat. The they never even bothered to try. The amount of effort it took to do that and to and to keep up the facade and the and the lie. It's like you know, trying to convince a child that Santa Claus is real or something like that. And maybe the kid is seven or eight and they're really inclined to believe it. They want to believe Santa Claus is real, but it ain't real. Um, the stress on him must have been absolutely enormous. I, I can't even imagine like just the anxiety because he he must have known He's, he was a fraud. Right. I mean, he had to have known that the whole thing was bullshit. Uh, it, it's, it's really interesting to me that he was able to function at yeah. all. For yeah, you know,
1: the the interesting thing um, what you uh, before I get into what you mentioned uh, what you alluded to I looked at this and Bruce Dubinsky and I talked about this he's the forensic investigator the amount of effort to go into this fraud is so unbelievable when you consider he had a legitimate business worth three billion dollars in and of itself there was no reason to do all this stuff right and, and this yeah. brain this magnificent brain, that um, had broken the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange, architected the NASDAQ, and then built this market maker, then to go spend all this energy and time and stress, which which leads me now to part two before we get to um, what the stress was like, which is you would assume that you've got this honest business, um, that obviously something went south, and you made the classic gambler's error, right? I'm going to double down and get the money back and no one will know right and in this case i'll run a little ponzi scheme that's immoral it's illegal but i'm going to do it and no one's going to catch it and he gave me this highfalutin really complex story along those lines which he hadn't really told publicly because he didn't think people would understand it and that's how he created the stories so he just put a lot of complexity so i you know that i'm thinking well that's got to be true then right because it you know it makes sense so let me go and and then I, you know basically by the time i was done He's building the 19th floor and the 17th floor at the same time. One of the biggest ethical enterprises on Wall Street, and one of the biggest criminal enter- enterprises downstairs, side by side. So now that gets back to your point. How the heck is it fathomable that one mind could compartmentalize like that? Because yeah. remember, on that floor up here, he's got MBAs, uh, top quality traders. He has to have honest admin even, like Eleanor. At the same time, he's hiring High school graduates using old technology versus leading edge technology, people he can manipulate who will do his dirty work. This guy's hiring them simultaneously yeah, and somehow managing to function. Now, at the end, he told me that, you know, it was going to it was going down um, in the end of, you know, in the 2008, for obvious reasons, the world, the global world had collapsed economically, but. He thinks that he could have gotten some money into it, but that he had at that point broken down to the extent he needed to end it. He just couldn't go on. And in fact, if you know the end of the story, he was actually going to default on a $250 million payment to a Swiss uh, hedge fund on December the 19th around that of 08, because it was perfectly timed. There'd be a weekend. Right, and then Christmas would come. So he was going to buy several days, right? Yeah. And when they asked, they so they wouldn't even ask where it was until they got back to work. And then he was going to say the trade is in the market, just buying some time. He wanted to get his employees through Christmas before the whole thing blew up. But he got to that December eighth time frame, he couldn't take the stress. So they were Deep Pascalie was going to get rid of everything. They were going to start the cover up, and Bernie at that point. He was so overwhelmed uh, with stress that there he did break down. Because as I say in the book, I don't think if he hadn't had the liquidity problem, he might well be in business
2: today. Yeah. I mean, he ran it for years. How long did it run? Decades?
1: I mean, it was early 70s, I think, at least. I mean, that's and it's a
2: $64 billion. I mean, it's it's really mind boggling, mind boggling. The whole thing uh, boggles the mind. So I want to talk about all the kind of regulatory agencies and that side of things, but we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jim Campbell. Okay, we're back with Jim Campbell, author of Madoff Talks, not, not Madoff Speaks very important distinction. So I don't know, you know, the show breaking bad. If you've seen breaking bad, I have not watched it. Oh my God. You should watch breaking bad. Anyway, there's a guy on the show who's the main villain named Gus Fring and he's a big cartel drug dealer guy, but uh, you know, meth dealing, but he is also an owner of a, a restaurant chain. And so he has this legitimate business that is also good for transporting the stuff around. And one of the reasons that he's able to get away with his crimes for so long is that he, he gives a lot of money to like the policeman's ball, and he's constantly having the law enforcement people there, and he's giving away free dinners. So he's basically trying to capture law enforcement. And writ large, in some capacity, it seems like Bernie kind of did the same thing with the SEC and the other regulatory agencies where he got so close to them and so up with them that I think they were cowed and didn't want to investigate him in the way that they might want to investigate somebody else. So uh, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Although I have to say it's equal parts incompetence too. Um, (laughs) But yes, he did. um, He built a, a great, Uh, reputation you know he was chairman of the nasdaq for a while it's on all kinds of industry uh committees he was so trusted by the sec that they would literally call him up and say this this is what goldman sachs is doing some convoluted technical thing we don't can you explain it to us so they could understand if it was kosher uh or not plus i have to say if you remember 1987 the market crash went down 22 percent in one day and as you know market makers They get that privilege and specialists on the exchange. They have to make markets even when things are tanking. That's part of the deal. You got to be willing to take losses in your inventory. So, what happened that day, of course, tons of market makers suddenly didn't answer their phones, they weren't available. Bernie made sure that uh, his firm answered the phone all day long. They took a $20 million loss, which was that day, which was a big amount of money for that size firm. And so he he did. He earned his reputation. He did not allow on that on the 19th floor. He didn't allow even footfalls that if um, if they were doing if they screwed something up like they didn't do a best price execution, he would report it, you know, things that nobody does. So, yeah, he built that credibility. But the thing is that. You have Harry Markopoulos, right? You have some firms on Wall Street that suspect something's not right. Harry turns in 30 red flags, which turns out to be a mistake because it was too much for them to digest. Yeah, They literally didn't understand him. Um, So they had all kinds of uh, indicators that something wasn't right. And as you know from the book, they had five separate investigations. Not only did they never uncover the Ponzi scheme or even the 17th floor, but they reinvestigated him for what they'd exonerated him on and a, a a crime that was one of the only things he never committed, which was front running, uh, which, you know, is um, if you're a market maker and you get an order for 500 shares of IBM, that's a bullish uh, indicator. So it'll the price will tick up very slightly um, after you do it. So you're the market maker and say, OK, I'm going to jump right in before that order because I know coming behind me is an IBM buy, and I'm going to uh, make a little bit. They thought that's how he guaranteed his returns, because they knew it would go up slightly, he'd take his quick profit and get out. But he never did that, because A, he wasn't trading, but B, he would never do that through his legitimate business. So you have the SEC reinvestigating for what they exonerated him. You had them not talking to each other. You know, uh, Harry was up at the in the Boston uh, SEC branch, and they didn't talk to the New York branch, which is where Bernie was. So stuff wouldn't even get through. Mm. They didn't understand it. They thought Harry was an un, was a disgruntled competitor because Madoff was beating them. Then they didn't communicate. Then Washington had a um, was looking at it from other angles. And within the SEC, they didn't know that. But here's the big one: Bernie had the broker-dealer, market maker, and the investment advisory Ponzi scheme. Those are different sets of examiners and they and because he wasn't registered as an investment advisor which of course is fundamentally he should have been registered for 30 years they never had investment advisory experts on the scene who know how to detect uh, a ponzi type of scheme these guys were looking on the just on the trading business and basically just on the legitimate business and even then they completely screwed up i mean they would uh, draft these letters we want all these trading records and you know thousands and thousands of documents but they didn't really want to go through it so they would end up not uh sending the letters even out and of course the worst one of all is bernie had told me which is in the docu series you know he he tells me you know jim it's a friday afternoon the SEC's in the office and he tells them uh there's this depository trust corporation which is the clearing entity on wall street right so that you're matching up buys and sells, and you know that stocks really exist and the money really exists, right? Every single trade can be traced through there. And Bernie says, my account number is 646, call them up and you'll see, and you can, you could trace every market maker trade through there. And then he says, then there's a sub account for the IA business, the investment advisory, go there and you'll see the exact same thing, except there was no sub account, there was no investment advisory business that had ever traded through the DTC, And it involved the five-minute phone call, which the SEC did not do. Bernie thought he was going to be arrested over the weekend. They never made the phone call. So this is a level of incompetence that is almost incomprehensible, along with the wrong people looking at it, along with no communications because of silos, and along with what you said. These examiners would come in. They were junior guys. Often they were young law school students. Didn't understand the trading business and wanted to just get jobs on Wall Street as soon as they could punch their you know card there. But Bernie would put these guys in a room right outside his office. And no one on Wall Street, when they're doing an examination, deals with the CEO of the company. They right. deal with the head of a compliance and you know that kind of stuff. Bernie wouldn't allow them to talk to anybody but him and Pascal. They'd be locked in this conference room and he would bully them. You know, I hate would tell them stuff like, you know, I'm on the short list to be the next SEC chair. You know, I ran the and basically scared the crap out of them. And um, they did a lousy job anyway. They didn't follow up on anything. And, you know, I can go into all kinds of details. He'd tell them that if when they said we can't find where you're doing all these options trades, it's options be part of the strategy. I'm doing it. They're off negotiated swaps. They're over in Europe. Um, And he'd give them fake European counterparties. They wouldn't check into that. Uh, Sometimes he made up the phone numbers, you know, it went on and on. And of course uh, my favorite one is that Frank would be downstairs in the boiler room and Bernie would say, they're asking for this report, bring it on up. So they would run it off the dot matrix, fake printer, you know, huge reams of fake data, but they didn't want to bring it in hot off the printer and show that, you know, it just got printed. So it would go into the freezer there for a while then out of the freezer they'd throw it around looks like it you know so it was used come up and then completely snowball the SEC
2: oh my god that, that that's crazy but i i watching that it reminded me of this story that i heard in the uh the the currency uh game right where uh this counterfeiter you know made these fake 100 dollar bills or whatever and you know they come off and they're nice so they needed to be handled to be circulated to appear like they were in circulation but who are you going to get to do that? So they wound up hiring a bunch of blind people to sit around a table and handle and handle these bills because they wouldn't be able to see. I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard it's a good story.
1: <laughs> One of the stories that uh, you know that I don't know you say it impresses me with Bernie's fakery, but the um, the DTC has these live screens that show you the actual portfolio that's being held there, so you can see the QZIP number of a treasury, right? And all the kinds of information, what is there, okay? And um, he would literally. What they did was they they copied the exact format of the uh, a screen, right? So um, essentially, it was a screenshot instead of a live feed, right? Yeah. But they told him this was a live feed, and Frank would be in another room in a closet, right? And would actually be pretending to be the counterparty, and. They He pulled this off. And the thing is, the way that it was uncovered was Dubinsky, there's metadata on anything that goes into a computer, right? So this was, the screenshot was, this is the December 9 portfolio position on on the DTC screen. And then the metadata would show that it was entered on like December 16th, you know, (laughs) after the whole thing.
2: And he pulled this off. This is what I mean by the stress, though. I mean, it's one thing yeah. you're going along, you're humming along, then you're in a closet trying to pull this shit. I mean, it's really, it's really stunning. And again, as I understand the DTC, which is, like you said, like sort of the clearinghouse for all these trades. Yes, yes. Like any trade that 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 exists, that's where it lives. That's where the record of it lives, as I understand it. And that's yes. also the fact that it's in New York gives New York jurisdiction over lots of financial crimes. This is this particular thing. So all they needed to do was call and check that number, and this oh. whole thing would have. I mean, a I simple a phone call. call. Yeah, that that's insane to me that they didn't do that. That's just just g- gross negligence of of, yeah. of everything. Um, speaking of gross negligence, you have also J.P. Morgan uh, Chase, right? Which is he had Bernie had this checking account, the seven hundred three account, which had like billions and billions of dollars. Is this? I, I don't know anything about this big high finance. Is it like the biggest like checking account ever? I, I don't know. Well, they-
1: <laughs> let me let me tell you about this because it goes both ways. Um, first off, the uh, docu series premieres January fourth, right? January 5th, guess who calls me? <laughs> Jamie Dimon. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> the chairman of G.P. Morgan. And it's funny because he starts going into this, raising his issues, right? And I'm going after about, I said, holy shit, I know more than Jamie does about this. And I started interrupting him. And after a minute, I'm not joking, he still, he gives up and starts asking me questions. <laughs> we, went through, we went through the detail of an HSBC custody fraud that they, that they perpetrated because he'd heard rumors and he wanted to know. Uh, so it could have been a nicer conversation. I actually apologized the next day for interrupting him. But yes, J.P. Morgan, first of all, I counted six entities within J.P. Morgan that touched Madoff in different ways. And again, like the SEC, did not communicate with each other. But here's the thing on this. This 703 account largely was just a checking account. And you have to have, since it's an equity trading strategy, payments to counterparties in and out, and you need need dividends, right? I mean, you're going to be deposited because dividends are part of the strategy. And over that course of period, there in fact should have been $4 billion of dividends deposited in that account. So J.P. Morgan is literally the only entity in the world that has a viewpoint into Bernie's finances, right? Because the feeders, nobody else saw what was going on. There were no independent custodians, as you know, real red flag. But J.P. Morgan could look into that account. So first off, never a single counterparty payment or deposit in 40 years. Never a single dollar of dividends deposited in 40 years. That looks strange. Next, Bernie has told them it's an operating expense account, meaning paying for paperclips and rent and things like that. Not a big deal. But $170 billion went through that account during that whole period. It's a lot on of paper clips. On the other side of that equation, Bernie admitted to me it never held more than $5.9 at any one time, which obviously would not have supported 65 billion dollar ponzi scheme even assuming some was in the market at the time so it was both a ridiculous amount of money and it clearly wasn't enough though to support the ponzi scheme now even worse in sec like incompetence we're in november of 2008 one month before bernie goes down bernie's desperately seeking money he asks jp morgan for a loan right now there's a law in the banking business where you need a KYC officer on the account, which stands for know your customer. And that's so you know if he's a drug runner or doing money laundering, you're responsible from, from a regulatory perspective for making sure your customer is not doing this. Okay, so the account's been there for 40 years. Bernie's asking for a loan one month before. The KYC officer thought it was the account for the market maker, which had been at Bank of New York. For forty years, he did not know what the count was doing one month before Bernie went down. Oh and my God! It's just incomprehensible how that uh, could have gotten down. And you know, we can go through what happened to the J.P. Morgan U.K. unit because that's where it was first, where they were. That's where the J.P. Morgan first went to a regulatory agency. Um, and we can go through that that if you want. But the whole thing was totally unconnected silos and the good thing about this from jp morgan's perspective was when i was going to go look into this uh, i asked jamie um if he would let me speak to his people that were involved now remember this is a completely negative failure on jp morgan so his answer should have been no way but he let me and we both went to tufts right university so there was a you know a thing there but surprisingly he gave me access and it turned out to be a brilliant and, and by the way i was such a jerk i asked him at a time he had just come through a near-death medical issue he had an aortic dissection right he was recovering from that but i was in the middle of my research so he connected me with his folks that had done the internal uh investigation and and communications on it and they were able to pretty well convince me that the problem was at that point they did not have the capabilities on the system side for horizontal communications well enough, which is why division X, Y, Z could have been operating in silos without coming across. I said, absent that, I was going to say they were criminally, willfully blind. And um, the trustee tried to prosecute them for that, actually, um, but wasn't allowed to. It was thrown out by the judge because the judge said they only had jurisdiction over individual victims, not banks. But I, I kind of understood um, that and by the way, I'm not going to violate Jamie's confidence, but he used a pretty bad epithet in our conversation about not really figuring out that 703 account.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's egg on the face, and, and they paid a pretty hefty fine. Although I don't know that these banks care that much. Deutsche Bank has paid like 11 billion dollars in fines in the last 10 years, something like that. So. Uh, if they're willing to just do that, I, they must be making a lot of money on these on these on these accounts. I don't know. Um, but let's move on to the. Uh, it's called the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, uh, which is something I'd never heard of before. Uh, and they really that that's that became kind of the government entity that took over when the, with the victims right after the fraud was was uh, discovered.
1: Uh, they're almost. Um... The bad guys in my analysis yeah I, I give them credit where they deserve it but when i compare this with jamie diamond first Cipic, uh and and it's actually not a government entity it's it's a self-regulatory controlled by the industry which explains right
2: right oh, there. okay okay, uh, okay
1: yeah, that's right. why it's 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 captive uh it's a captive agency but here's the thing the trustee there a guy named Irving picard they ended up getting 14 billion of the 65 they thought they had which was 19 billion on an original investment value okay which looks like the most successful recoupment of a ponzi scheme in history so he's got himself out here looking like a hero meanwhile jp morgan looks like a complete failure but jamie let's be get inside their silo picard rejected me three different times okay now let's look at sipic how do they do this number one 16 years before this happened, the GAO, which is Congress's investigative arm, had said, You are not structured or capitalized to handle a major Wall Street collapse. And that is their job. They are the FDIC equivalent in the securities industry. Now, the FDIC is an independent uh, government, independent non governmental agency. So they're not controlled by the government, but they're not captive of the industry. They were formed in the New Deal by FDR, have never not paid a claim that's legitimate and have never cost the government $1. Now let's go to CIPIC here. They had this 16-minute, 16 16-year 16 lead time. We come up. They're not ready still. The premium that they were charging the firm so that there'd be a customer fund if something collapsed. The FDIC, right, charges risk-based premiums. So the riskier the savings and loan is, the bank, the more they pay in in, um, in premiums, which makes sense, right, and fair. SIPC is charging in 2008 $150 a year premium, regardless of whether you're Merrill Lynch or a one-man trading guy through Bear Stearns, okay? So there's no money really there, and it's a complete joke. Okay, so Bernie goes down, $65 billion, and here's the first thing they do. This was a fake investment scheme. We don't recognize it then. We don't really have an obligation to make good. Now, as you just said, not only had you not heard of sipic but anybody that did, it's on the bottom of every statement. It looks like the FDIC. Mm-hmm. And there's no small print that says, oh, if it's a Ponzi scheme, there's a, there was a 60-page brochure then that didn't mention Ponzi schemes. And lo and behold, they'd actually recognized Ponzi scheme in one case and then not in others. OK, so that, that's the second thing they do, which is outrageous, is how would you like to get your Maryland statement every month and find out that they're not going to recognize that that final balance before the bank went down? OK, remember, I said they did. And those total 65 billion, if you added everybody's up, but they didn't recognize that. They said, no, no, all we're going to recognize is the 19.5 billion that was deposited, some of which was 40 years ago. So right off the bat, you're screwed on the rest of that money. Yeah. Um, Okay, so now they do that. The third thing, where do they get this money? How does Picard become such a hero? Lo and behold, they decide to go after Madoff victims who took more money out than they put in and claw that back. Even if they knew nothing about the crime and no longer had that money because they bought a house with it or something. Take that pile of money in and give it to the Madoff victims who didn't take any money out, so they left more money in than they took out. And by the way, Picard would earn, in total, so far, $2 billion in fees. It sounds like you just victimized the victims again, that you made this money back by taking it from Madoff victims, not from the customer fund, not from having um, the industry honor the fact that this this thing went down and they should uh, have—the people— People expected, like the FDIC, they would value the $65 billion and I'd get my money back. I compare this. I bought a share of Berkshire Hathaway years ago for 15000 bucks, right? Under Picard's methodology, 40 years later, um, Berkshire Hathaway is worth $430,000. Picard would say, I got all my money back if he got that $15,000. How do you think I'd feel?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Be, yeah. Not very good. And that's essentially what they did. And then... He went, not only did he claw back these guys brutally, he sued them. He went after their houses. There were 70-year-old people literally having to go to work at Walmart. He went after their IRAs. Uh, It was absolutely ruthless. Now, from the position of SIPC, controlled by the industry, it looked great, right? Because he was getting money back, highly successfully, and not from their pockets. But, um, you know, looking like they were very successful in clawing back money. Now, let me say in their defense, I uh, credited them on stuff they did really well. Their their taking down what the feeder funds was doing was brilliant. They had all these briefs, these legal briefs, you know, Fairfield credits, whichever one you want to go through. And it was brilliant work. And they they claw back money from those guys, too. So I gave them credit where they deserved it. I don't give them credit for the fact that they didn't talk to me. Even though they are supposedly out there protecting the securities industry public, aren't they? Right, not the firms. They're supposed to be, you know. Uh, and they were. They had this trustee to do this. To me, he had a public, uh, deal, uh, do uh, public fiduciary responsibility to talk about it with me, um, not just put out puff press releases and try to cover up that two billion bucks. Right, they made. The, they said we're heroes in that because not one dime of that did we take out of the fourteen billion. The uh, customer money we got back—that's true, right? Where'd they get the two billion? That entire customer fund, right? That I told you didn't have adequate money was about one point six billion when they started. They paid him out of that fund, which again was for customers, right? Yeah. It allowed them to say we didn't we we got fourteen billion back and we didn't even take anything off of it. Well, yeah, you took it from a customer fund. Here's another thing: ten billion bucks of that money out of the fourteen was from who the big 4 we know i told you before bernie was instrumental in getting that 7 billion back so a lot of the money that picard got back bernie helped get back and came from four people
2: and the rest of it yeah i there's just for people listening who aren't familiar with the story um a, a couple of points to hit feeder funds are basically um investment organizations that somebody would go to and say, hey, you're a fancy investment firm. I'm going to put my money there. And they would, in turn, go and invest with Bernie. Yeah. And people investing in those funds didn't necessarily even know that. Um, so <laughs> to, to me, that that's horrifying.
1: Yeah, and here's the horrifying part. Um, these funds, that uh, they're called feeder funds, because what their job is, uh, let's say your wife's got some money and she's very conservative, right? So my job is to say, I'm looking at conservative investors. They match your profile and I vetted them. The, the strategy is what he's really doing. The returns are there. The assets are held over here separately in a prime broker, so we know they're there. And for that, I get 1% of assets, okay? I find the right home for it. I diversify you. I vet the guy is all there, right? Okay, and then the money is with a guy named Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff in turn, as the manager, earns 2% of the assets and 20% of the gains. So obviously in other words a lot more than this guy at the front who is just essentially administering the money and directing it, okay? And and doing due diligence. Yeah. And he gets his 1%. Here's what Bernie did. He took that entire 2% and 20% and gave it back to the feeders. I mean to the to Greenwich, Fairfield Greenwich that was like 2 billion dollars in fees over the time. But can't ask any questions. Can't do any due diligence in the beginning. You can't even tell them that you put it with me. You can't you, you can't use my name. And if you do use my name, you got to tell me tell them that I'm not making the investment decisions. All I'm doing is executing trades, which of course was his market making business. So you have the feeder funds abrogating their due diligence, essentially taking bribes and running these poor people off a cliff.
2: Yeah, I mean that's to me they're the the most horrifying ones. But the uh, Picard um irving picard not john luke picard john luke picard never do such a thing uh to to the money that he was recovering apart from what you said you know the lion's share were the big four that bernie helped but the he he got the money from people that didn't necessarily have a lot of money you know who are just quote unquote normal people who happened to fall into these investment things and and,
1: and didn't know that they were being part of a scheme
2: it wasn't their fault I mean, and there was a couple in the in the uh, docu series that was being interviewed. and it's like you're looking at Bernie,, uh, you're reading articles about him. Hey, he's on Wall Street. He's sitting on this commission. He's doing this. The SEC investigates him what five times and exonerates him all five times. Why wouldn't you put your money with him? Of I mean, whatever due diligence you're going to do is going to be fine so it's it's just a it's really a clusterfuck i mean you just feel so bad yeah. for the people and, um, and by uh, the way
1: you're, you're right when you know i was telling you know that trying to clarify the civic was really bad guys but the feeder funds all those guys should be in jail yeah Not none of them went to jail they they wiped all these you know all these people out
2: yeah it, it's really it's really sad um you know, and that's that's you know, reading the story and thinking about it. I think somebody in the in the doc, one of the victims, I think in the documentary, uh, says that she's into Shakespeare now and how Shakespearean the whole story is, and I think she's totally right. I mean, when you have the, you know, his sons and and how family was important and how his family was just, I mean, completely destroyed by this to the point where they both died. Uh, you know, before he did, which you know, on must have been horrible for him. I, I would think. Insofar as someone that sociopathic can have feelings, uh, I think it's I I did
1: ask him about that um, because, uh, you know, you know, first, you know, Andrew had said to me, my dad killed my brother quickly. He's killing me slowly. Yeah. um, So anyway, I said, well, Bernie, what, what, what was your remorse on your own kid dying? Well, he claims that he'd stopped eating for two weeks and became suicidal. And obviously did have, you know, some remorse over. Um, so, OK,
2: um, we're we're coming up on an hour and I don't I don't want to keep you too long. I want to talk about what's in the news now, because you think Ponzi scheme and now you, we've got this this Sam Bankman Freed fellow. Yes. Uh, who, like Bernie, as I uh, as I see it, has had two different businesses. And, you know, the the investment one started to lose money. So as I understand, it took money out of business A to pay business B, which is not actually what Bernie did, but it's a more traditional, I think, Ponzi scheme kind of thing. So what what lessons do you think from Bernie can we apply here? What similarities do you see? Yes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. Um,
1: first off, I, in my mind, I noticed, as we said, Bernie had this great reputation, right? Regulators, trust. It was the Jewish T bill within the Jewish community, as as full faith and secure as the government treasury. That's why they called them the Jewish T bill. Eighty five percent of the people who were victims, were, were um, Jewish or Jewish charities. Okay, now go over to SBF. He's wandering around in his shorts and everything, but he has this altruistic strategy, mm-hmm. uh, philosophy. Sorry, he's pro regulation to a degree, which is unusual in crypto. He's given $73 million to politicians, mainly Democrats. He's got credibility in that community. He's got some CFTC, which is the uh, the uh, regulatory body for crypto. He's hired X guys there. They're on. So he's bought himself credibility. And that's a strategy that Bernie used. Now, let's go to the second thing. Bernie had no remorse. We've just talked about his sons. But amongst his victims, he did not have remorse. And we can go through that in any kind of detail. We go over to SBF. SBF basically says, I don't know what happened. My dog ate the homework. And I'm like, okay, your dog ate the homework. Now let's look under the hood a little bit, because this is one hell of a smart dog. It's (laughs) alleged that you took $8 billion of customer money and put it into Alameda Research, which was doing all kinds of risky, illiquid investments, which you mentioned before, right? He used that money for collateral to go make these, these bets, right? And by the way, it's not his money. It's customers' money, and to show you how smart this dog was, they programmed the system so that the 1.3 billion of that eight billion was directly collateral for SBF loans, right? And they programmed it so he wasn't even charged interest on the money he was borrowing, stealing from his customers. Now that's a heck of a smart dog to save money, and then he, you know, he bought three hundred dollars or three hundred million dollars of real estate. $200 million into two investments, Robin hood being one and $400 million into two hedge funds and 73 billion uh, million into politicians. Now, what are the similarities? Well, first off commingling of funds. That's what Bernie did essentially. Yeah. Secondly, due diligence. We just went through the feeder fund. So it's a great lead in here. Sequoia, SoftBank, Citadel, uh, BlackRock all had money in uh, invested in this, in this guy's deal and they're very sophisticated. And by the way, they're managing other people's money. It's not their money. Obviously, they did no due diligence because SPF had no controls, no financial controls, was using a QuickBooks for accounting, which is, you know, what you use for your neighborhood uh, small business out of your house. So you go through all, all these all these kinds of steps, trust, lack of remorse, commingling of funds, no due diligence. Ah, what about regulatory? Again, total regulatory. There was no regulatory structure, but... Still no regulatory action. It was all coming in. As I say, SEC is not a cop. It comes in afterwards and cleans uh, the mess up. There are other things that were not like Bernie, but bad. Number one is that collateral, right? As soon as that collapsed, right? He had a huge liquidity crisis, right? Which is what happened. Well, who did that? Lehman Brothers. That's how they went down. Bernie had two entities in one shell, the 19th and 17th. This guy had 100 Um, Entities, just like another entity that was doing self dealing, hiding behind Byzantine uh, entities and hiding too much debt, that was Enron. So this guy, whose dog ate the homework, actually had a lot more similarities than anything Bernie had with all these between these uh, other things. And there's others that I'm not even going to go into.
2: So lots of different it's like he he's the best that he's a best of kind of thing or it's a fusion kind of kind of uh, if it was a restaurant, it would be like a fusion, uh, a fusion restaurant.
1: Now, to be fair, to be fair, he's pleaded innocent. Right. And that's how we operate in this country. These are allegations by the DOJ and the SEC. The, um that I've studied and the whole thing doesn't smell good. I've even talked about another thing, you know, that um, Enron did is market manipulation, right? Electricity yeah. rates in California. Well, the whole thing, the, the FTX exchange, the currency, the Bitcoin that he used was called FTT. That was his token, right? Well, in order for that money that he borrowed to put it over here in Alameda to be collateral, that FTT currency had to stay stable, right? Because otherwise, the value of that collateral went into the toilet. It's out alleged that part of the way that stayed stable was he was manipulating the market and supply and things like that through Alameda. That's, again, something Bernie never did. Yeah. And Ron did.
2: Yeah. Um, Bernie also dealt in dollars and not like wacky uh, stuff that doesn't exist. Um, there's also ce- the celebrity aspect, too, because I think, you know, people got hit by. Obviously, you know, famous people got hit by by Bernie and victimized by him. And uh, with the other guy, um, you know, it's mostly the commercials because they ran an awful lot, especially last year. The Super Bowl is coming up as we're taping this last year at the Super Bowl. Like every third commercial was either for a crypto exchange or like some online betting thing.
1: Yeah, he was he was buying his credibility.
2: Yes. Yeah. He was like, okay, Tom Brady and whoever else was, was uh, you know, involved with that. So it's interesting. It's be interesting to follow that and, and, and see where it runs. And uh, I don't know, in a couple of years, you're going to be like in prison interviewing this guy. I can, I can tell that's the, <laughs>
0: that's
1: the next thing. There's no Mrs. SBF for me to get, you know, <laughs> except that his girlfriend ran Alameda.
2: Yeah. So I guess she's going to be in jail too. Yeah, probably. Because the, the SEC and the DOJ. I, I
1: just want to meet, I want to meet the dog that ate that homework because it didn't pretty
2: impressive job he's on a rocket ship tomorrow he knew he knew better uh, to, than to stick around he changed passports he's he's living in ecuador under a different passport uh so are you on are you on twitter or or you're you yeah you're, i'm on, okay. on twitter at
1: at jim o campbell jim o C-A-M-P-E-L-L.
2: okay and, and where else can people find you
1: Well, first of all, MadoffTalksBook.com gets you you to the book website. It has Netflix stuff on it. It has my radio show links on it. And, of course, it has the book links. So that gets you everything. And you can get to me through that. Um, And then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook, too. You
2: can find me. Okay. Um, Again, the book is called uh, Madoff Talks. It's not called Madoff Speaks. Um, And it's really good. So if you haven't read the book, check it out. If you haven't watched the docu series, you know, check it out. Um, I think this is a it's an important story for our time because we, you know, there's something that it says something about a culture by what criminals teach us something about the culture. I think that we live in and the society we live in and how we. Treat the criminals and how we eventually arbitrate the stuff and all that, and I think it's uh, there's a lot there, and I think you've done a wonderful job of of explaining it all uh, to people like me who don't really necessarily understand all the the finance stuff. So,
1: well, I, I say, Greg, too, great questions. You, I, I'm always appreciative when someone's done a lot of research, has read the book watch the docu series and then asks really good questions some of which I haven't been asked before so that's always
2: I always want to ask at least one that hasn't been asked before
1: yeah that's I enjoy that. it I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy when somebody finds an angle that's different and then having to you know think through it because obviously it's a lot of the questions I've been asked before but it's it's fun to be in a show that does a deep dive as opposed to you know, a five-minute hit on tv
2: on on prevail we like to we like to spread out you know and just relax and and ease into everything so uh um yeah so again the book is called made off talks uh jim campbell thanks so much for joining me today this was terrific
1: greg thank you very much appreciate it
2: Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.